What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, you ready for episode 137? Is that what it is? You don't sound confident. I, I was confident until it came out of my mouth, <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. It's either that or 138, I'm pretty sure. Sounds right to me. If so not, we'll have two 137s. We will. We've, it wouldn't be the first. <laughs> no. Oh, man, that's thanks. I was so confident in that number until I said it out loud, and then I feel like I've written it before. That sounds so. good. I mean, it sounds good to me. It's, it is what it is. Welcome to episode 137 or 138, 138 yeah. depending on the order at yeah. which you listen to them. Yeah, so, that's, uh, wild. that's wild, huh? It, Almost to 150, man. I know, man. It's crazy. I, uh, I, I, someone was asking me the other day about like when we started and things like that, and uh I had to like think back to the dates and I was like, I guess it was January, 2018, but I'm like, that's, it seems like we haven't been doing this that long, man. That's wild. Yeah, we have been. been. I was pulling up, I was pulling up and parking and I was like, I pulled up and parked here a lot (laughs) because I've been here a lot. I don't think I've been to anyone else's uh, place more than yours in the last three years. That's true. Yeah, that's probably true. I guess we've been doing, uh, because especially, I mean, once a week for the last four years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. At least once a week. Yeah. Look but, at us um, reminiscing. Yeah. Just us uh, remembering the good old time. <laughs> <laughs> Way back when. Um, so what are we talking about tonight? Yeah. So there's a new guideline, um, a new Kadigo, 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 Kadigo guideline, um, 2021. This is an update um from the 2012 guidelines. So it's been quite some time. And this is the um, the kidney guidelines. So these are the kidney disease IGO. I'm not sure what the IGO stands for. But these are the kidney guidelines. And specifically what they're talking about are the management of blood pressure in chronic kidney disease in patients who don't have or who are not on dialysis. That is what they have updated. So frequently in school, if you you know if you were learning blood pressure goals, you probably saw goals related to JNC8, ACCAHA, and um, Kadigo. And so we have updated versions of pretty much all those is in the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this one is very interesting. Um, the big the big I guess headline if you if you want to put it that way of this one is this is the first American. I guess significant American guideline to recommend a systolic blood pressure less than 120 in any patient population. I think um, the only other one is the Canadian guidelines, which they reference. And I, I kind of like these guys; they're kind of cheeky throughout it. And I, I'll, I'll we'll 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 see it, but they definitely take some pot shots at the other guidelines <laughs> throughout. Like for sure, it had me chuckling as I was going through it. I was like, "This isn't an official guideline, y'all are like calling these other guys out for." Poor, like, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. The nephrology folks, they don't mess around. No. <laughs> They're not afraid to talk trash. No. So, the Kadaga, like you said, kidney disease, um, and then it's improving global outcomes is the IGO. So, yeah, the last three don't matter. The important one is kidney disease. Well, the, my point of saying... <laughs> <laughs> My point of saying that was, <laughs> was because one thing I do like about the 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 renal folks is that um, they do want to treat the renal disease, but they also are very focused on overall outcomes. So you'll see that a lot of times these uh, these guidelines, as far as like this part of it, like with their blood pressure and the one that came out, um, I want to say maybe several months ago um, on diabetes management. But like this one, you'll see that they're not even necessarily getting renal protective benefits from these new guidelines. This is literally just lowering cardiovascular risk in that patient population. So they're really focused on like the total patient and not just kind of 
trying to stay in their lane with um, with kidney function. Right, whatnot, and that's so. a big spoiler because you see Kodigo guidelines and you're thinking, oh, less than 120 must improve renal outcomes. But they specifically say it hasn't really been shown. It's just cardiovascular and survival benefit that you get from this. And um, they talk about a lot of trials. So we'll, we'll talk through some of the trials as we go through too. Cool. So we're, uh, I guess before we even get started, I was going to say, where do we want to start? But actually, I do want to throw out some background information for those of you who maybe just need a quick refresher. Um, so um, as far as like renal function, um, you know, EGFR, that's where we kind of stage the, um, you know, where the patient's progression is in their, uh, if they have chronic kidney disease. Um, so EGFR, if it's greater than um, 90, you know, that's considered like a normal or high um EGFR for a patient, so their 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 functions okay. If it is sixty to eighty nine, that's where it's starting to be like mildly decreased. Um, and then when you get into like stage three, um, they actually break up three. Uh, they call it three A and three B. So three A is forty five to fifty nine. Three um, B is thirty to forty four. And then stage four is like 15 to 29. That's severely decreased EGFR. And then when you go below 15, that's considered, you know, end-stage renal disease, kidney failure. The person really is just kind of getting ready to go on dialysis at that point, kind of um, going through the motions of setting that up and hopefully awaiting a kidney transplant in some cases. And in those um, later stages, so they talk in the guideline, which we'll get to, about some instances where the less than 120 may not, I guess the benefit is more unclear than in just the regular CKD population and the later stages is actually one of those. Um, and I should say at the outset that the, the, the recommendation is for systolic blood pressure is less than 120 asterisk asterisk because pretty much the whole guideline is them making caveats about that um, and about the specific situations about who, how you can benefit from that um, blood pressure lowering um, but yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. So besides EGFR, the other thing that's important is the albumin creatinine ratio. And that's going to come into play when we look at, you know, when, um, and if we need to give like an ACE inhibitor for renal protection and all that. Um, you know, it's, a lot of times like with diabetes patients, uh, if they have diabetes and any kind of kidney disease, we kind of automatically jump to ACE and R because of, you know, former guidelines and things like that. Um, but they are kind of specific now as far as where the patient's um, albuminuria is, is actually at. Um, and so they have category A1, which means their albumin creatinine ratio is less than 30. Um, and then if the albumin creatinine ratio is 30 to 300, then it's A2. Greater than 300 is um, considered to be stage 3. And that's really what we used to call um, like, so 30 to 300 was like the microalbuminuria that we used to refer to it as. And then, um, macro was above 300. And so now they just use a one, a two, a three. It makes it a little bit more simple, but that'll come into play when we talk about like the specific treatment options and whatnot. Right. Cool. So, so is that the background of it? Yeah, that's it. That's all, that's, that's all I had. Nice. <laughs> You want to, I guess you want to start off talking about, they made a whole section about blood pressure me measurement. Yeah. So the, so what they point out as being the two major areas that warrant particular attention in this guideline, that is an update from the 2012 guideline is one blood pressure measurement and two, the blood pressure targets in CKD patients. So we've already referenced the target and we'll get it more into that later with the data and stuff. Um, so yeah, blood pressure measurement. And um, we've definitely referenced this before, probably when we talked about the ACCAHA guideline because they hit on it a lot. 
um, as well, but this was pretty much non-existent in the original Kodaigo guideline, is the emphasis on proper blood pressure measurement and what they refer to as, what do they call it? I think they call it standardized blood pressure measurement, I think is the word that they use. Um, so yeah. they, they have standardized office blood pressure, and then they have routine office blood pressure. Yes. And that's the big distinction that they kind of talk about. Um, and so I'm, I actually, in a minute, we'll go through, you know, kind of some some important um, things that you want to make sure the patient is doing and that you're doing to make sure it's appropriate. But one big thing is they really emphasize the use of um, uh, automatic blood pressure cuffs versus manual blood pressure, taking a manual blood pressure. And I think the, the term they use is automatic oscillometric um, blood pressure devices, which oscillometric are devices that measure um, oscillation generating pulses and relate that to blood pressure in some way. Uh, but that's what they specifically mentioned. But these automatic blood pressure cuffs, and a lot of this comes from, like I said, the ACCHA guideline that mentions it, but also the SPRINT trial. So in the SPRINT trial, uh, which we'll get into more detail with, used a standardized blood pressure um, uh, measuring device. It was an automatic blood pressure cuff. They used a certain brand, which the Kodigo guidelines doesn't necessarily say it needs to be a certain brand. What they say is we just want it to be standardized and recommending an automatic cuff um, to be measured in the office. And then they also emphasize um, the importance of measuring out of office and even doing like a 24-hour uh, blood pressure um, review or blood pressure um, Ambul documentation. Ambulatory. Ambulatory, yeah. 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 And that's the really, we've actually been doing a little bit more of that, even in our clinic too, as far as having the patient, I've actually been asking patients not just to write down their numbers when they do like the home blood pressure monitoring or if they go to like a grocery store or something, but I actually tell them to take a picture with it, of it with their phone since everybody's got a camera in their pocket now, because sometimes patients fib <laughs> and, uh, camera so, doesn't lie. Camera doesn't lie. So that, uh, I've actually been using that and I think, um, a couple of the providers have actually mentioned that to a couple of their patients as well, who their stuff just isn't adding up as far as their blood pressure management. But um, I think one of the biggest you know issues with looking at blood pressure in the office um, from a clinical standpoint is you know how that blood pressure was actually taken. That's the big thing, like Cole was saying, that they kind of emphasized and where they talk about standardized versus like routine. So with standardized office blood pressure, they want you to go like through a very specific like set of, you know, steps in order to get an accurate blood pressure, you know, uh, assessment. Um, and the first one, which literally I, I would say 95% of the time never happens is step one, which is where in the patient, um, you know, is first being assessed, have the patient relax, sitting in a chair, feet on the floor, back supported for more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. I literally can't think of a single time in the clinic when a patient, even in, when I've been a patient in a, yeah. a random clinic, I come in, the nurse immediately checks my blood pressure. It's the first thing I do. And the MA or well, whatever but that's, it is. And it's not a hit on them. That's what we would call routine blood pressure monitoring, which they point out that the variability between standardized blood pressure monitoring and routine blood pressure monitoring is significant, and there's no way to account for it in, in specific recommendations. So that's why they're just saying, you got to do it this way, and that applies to our recommendation. If you're not doing it this way, you're not going to get the results from this recommendation. And the other thing they also, you know, to want to talk to the patient about besides, well, in, I, you could have them kind of sitting while you ask them these questions, but 
you know, they want to know if the patients had caffeine that morning, if they'd done any kind of exercise in that morning, if they've, when the last time they had this, a cigarette was. So if a cigarette's been smoked in the last 30 minutes, um, it can actually disrupt the, the accuracy of the measurement, um, which that's something that I've, I don't really, you know, until I was reading these guidelines, really wasn't thinking about. I always take a puff before I get my blood pressure checked. I know. Cole's, so, a, Cole's, Cole's an avid smoker, <laughs> and I've been trying to get him to quit for a long time, but he won't listen. Um, the other thing they've mentioned is to ensure the patient has emptied his or her bladder. Um, which I, I'm like, I also wouldn't have thought of that one, but it completely makes sense. If you're, if especially you gotta, being in the waiting room for like an hour and a half, oh, yeah. you know, you've always got some, always got to pee. Yeah. And by the time you get there back then, that's all you're thinking about. Your blood pressure's up there. Cause you're like, yo, I gotta get out of this appointment <laughs> so I can go pee. So, um, a couple of different, you know, things. And then the rest of it is as far as, uh, making sure the patient doesn't have like clothing covering the location of the cuff placement and things like that are, are pretty standard. Um, and then, you know, they talks about the proper technique for blood pressure measurement, um, making sure that the device you're using is appropriate and calibrated if it's automatic and all that good stuff. Um, making sure that the patient's arm is kind of resting, resting on like the desk or, you know, chest level if possible. Um, I know like every time I get mine checked, like if I go to like a, you know, routine appointment or something, my arm's always like hanging down, like an orangutan off that chair <laughs> when they, uh, when they check it, I'm like, this isn't going to be accurate. But, but it's also different because your height is going to affect how you sit in the chair and how it relates to even a table that's right there. So, right. So someone like me, extremely tall, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hanging down like an orangutan. Yeah, right. exactly. That's why I said that. One, one interesting thing that I don't ever think about is at the first visit, record blood pressure on both arms, which I, I've heard, but then um, use the arm that gives the higher reading for subsequent readings. So if at that first visit, if the right arm is the higher, then that's what you should record from. And I mean, I don't know. I don't often see that their blood pressure was 160 over you know 34 in their right arm. I don't usually see that documented. So that's interesting. And not only that, but I would be willing to bet in most cases, um, because the first steps weren't followed, and this happens all the time in my clinic where I see the patient's uh, blood pressure was entered the first time and it's, you know, it'd be 170 and over whatever. And then the next, you know, then five minutes later, you'll see him re-put it in again and it'd be 155 over or whatever. And so, it, you know, they, we normally will, we document both and we keep an accurate like measurement of that. But the one that we kind of like keep is like the main blood pressure of that one. is the second with the lower one. Cause obviously we want our numbers to look as good as possible. And so if you were following this and they sat down and then you measured they probably whatever would. the first one was would be the arm that was the highest, even right. though that might not be necessarily. Anything. Yeah. So that's one of those things that you got. And a lot of it is for speed, right? So, I mean, if you've got to bring, if you, once you've roomed a patient, if you've got to sit them there for five minutes before you even do their blood pressure, you know, it slows things down. And they actually even reference that in the guideline. They say that following these standardized practices is a burden to the patient and to the healthcare system but of course they determined that it's worth the burden to to have it be accurate and to get the the best outcomes and i mean is it really that much of a burden to the patient for five extra minutes come on yeah i mean if they've already been the, the waiting room for 45 yeah what's five more minutes i can't imagine i mean i would just say do the med rec before you do the blood pressure yeah med rec's done blood pressure right something just don't make it the first thing you do and that would probably create a much more accurate blood pressures you would think. I don't know. I don't do this on a daily basis, so who am I to, to judge? I, I'm, I can't judge. <laughs> Stop being so judgy. All we can do is say what the recommendations are. And and what the, the problem is, that this that's what this 120 systolic blood pressure recommendation is based on. And if you're not doing this, then you could be over-treating a patient, right? So if they're coming in and they've just, you know, 
you know, run a marathon and they sit down and their blood pressure is 125 over whatever. And then we're like, oh, let's increase your blood, your medicine because we want you under 120. But really, your actual blood pressure was 115 or whatever it was. Then we're we're over treating and there's there's danger in that. So that's why it's important. Yeah, and the and the guidelines are very specific about that. Like they yeah. they they talk about that. You know, saying if you can't even bo- don't even bother with our guidelines if uh, if you're not going to do the steps right in the first place. Yeah. Um, how many patients do you think are running marathons before coming in? Most, I'd say most of mine for sure. Yeah, I mean, based on the amount of sweatiness. That's that's actually the. Um, one of the lines that I use when I'm telling a patient, like when they have a big improvement in their A1C, they still got some room to go. I'll hype them up, but they want the initial drop. And then I'll, man, I'll be like, man, can you imagine after, you know, a couple more months of trulicity or whatever the heck I put them on? And I'm like, you can be running marathons. And they're always like this, you know, the seven year old little lady that's sitting there and she's like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> gets a laugh like 60% of the time. <laughs> At least 62% of the time. I use that one. And then I live that. You know, if you, usually with someone like in their seventies, I go, man, you're, this A1C looks so good. We're gonna have, we're gonna give you another seventy years easily. <laughs> and the one guy the other day, he goes, oh, please, I hope not. <laughs> he was like, I, he's like, trust me, you're my age, you don't want to live another seventy years. <laughs> That's hilarious. That was pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, last things with the standardization, which would just be good to review in general if if you're if you're taking blood pressures or treating blood pressure, um, appropriate cuff size separate repeated measurements by one to two minutes um yeah yeah that's probably the big ones appropriate cuff size is big i I don't know if you guys have ever seen use an average of greater than two readings obtained on greater than two occasions to estimate the individual's bp level have you seen the um the the cuff that's uh so they have like the regular size cuff they have the large cuff and then they actually have one that's it's called a thigh (laughs) cuff which i said one time and i saw some people when i said it, some people laughed and i'm like that's that's a, that's a real thing i didn't make that up it's in like the cdc's guidelines yeah they have to measure from the from the femoral arteries yeah sometimes. and so but they'll you sometimes use that large cut we don't have one in our, in our clinic but apparently that's one of the things if the person's obese and to get an accurate measurement they'll use the thigh cuff on the arm yeah and go from there yeah i shouldn't say i shouldn't assume they're obese maybe they're just super muscular it's possible, and that's big muscles. Maybe. All right, so that's checking the blood pressure, which is key. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to go from here? And like we said, sprint trial, that's why it's important. Uh, before we get into the goals, they do mention um, some dietary stuff, and it's really just emphasizing the importance of, in CKD patients, targeting a sodium intake of less than two grams, which they pretty much recognize is an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, they also reference the DASH diet, but they actually kind of critique it by saying that um, a lot of times in those situations, people are using salt substitutes. Frequently, the salt substitute is potassium, and in CKD patients, it can increase risk for hyperkalemia. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the sodium is important, but it is a very tough thing to do. And they they do mention that, um, like, even in clinical trials, not every patient's adhering to that, that strict diet. And they, they talked about a, um, a meta-analysis that was looking at non-CKD populations that demonstrated, a, and I quote, a graded benefit in both blood pressure and cardiovascular disease risk reduction with reductions in sodium intake, even if they weren't 100% reaching that less than two grams. So anything the patient's doing is going to most likely offer some benefit. So if it, if they can't get any reduction to, from baseline yeah. is positive. Yeah. So we're not trying to like beat people up if they can't get all the way down there. Right. Um, they also mentioned exercising. Um, so they, they discuss the 150 minutes per week, um, 
you know, of moderate intensity um, exercise to, you know, improve cardiac outcomes and all that stuff. Um, but they also do a good job of kind of mentioning, you know, okay, we also realize that the patients that are in, you know, these types of studies or that are at this risk, especially with CKD, have other comorbidities, maybe frailty. Um, and so it's going to potentially limit their level of physical activity. Um, and so the, they think that the, they mentioned the increased risk um, of those adverse events um, probably doesn't like warrant them to not exercise at all, but just reduce the exercise based on that person's ability that they can do without, you know, in kind of accommodating their, the patient's personal like, cognitive and physical limitations. Um, it, but that you should encourage them at least to do some sort of exercising, even if you don't hit the proposed targets. Cause that's, that's the, I've had a lot of patients that I've talked to where, you know, they, I, they they'll tell me like, Oh, well, my doctor says not to do the exercises because I have, you know, this wrong with me or whatever. And I'm, I'm like, well, yeah, you don't have to get on a treadmill and go for 30 minutes straight or a bike or whatever. But I'm like, could do you, do you do any like short walks? Like, could you go to the mailbox and back? Like, Oh yeah, I could do that. Well, let's do that then. Let's start, you know, just give them some kind of a very small realistic goal. I think can kind of help get them back on track with that. Yep. That's my personal opinion on the matter. I agree. So it's our personal opinion on the matter. <laughs> this is, this is the official stance of the core console podcast. <laughs> Um, okay, so to the big one, uh, the less than 120. Mm-hmm. So like we said, it was um, this recommendation is almost exclusively based on one trial, the SPRINT trial, uh, which did look at um, non-diabetic patients uh, randomized to a blood pressure goal of less than 120 versus 140, and it's all positive benefit. They didn't see uh, renal benefit, but they did see uh, a reduction in um, cardiovascular events and survivability. Um they do say that, um, yeah, of course, it needs. It was they were randomized to this, but they had the standardized um, blood pressure measuring, and that's one really important thing. Um, so they mentioned some other guidelines um, that don't necessarily have this recommendation, and this is a change from their 2012 Cadigo guidelines, which were 130 over 80, which were actually kind of radical at the time because back then most people were JNC eight which was probably, what, 140? It might have even higher than that. 140 over 90 so was JNC 8. But I actually, I think they, they were even JNC 7 back then. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, but when... 8 came out when I was in school. You're right, JNC 7. 2014. It was 150, wasn't it? No, um, I think, I can't remember what JNC 7 was, but the... Might still been 140. Um, but I know 8 was definitely 140 over 90, and then there was 150 over 90 if the patient was like mm. over They're 50, older. over 60 or whatever. Right. Um. And that, that I'm glad you brought that up too, because that is interesting that, uh, and we'll kind of see in the future if they were ahead of their time on this one too, but right. they were calling 130 over 80 probably earlier than a lot of other people were. And then when JNC relaxed, I think they, JNC rela- eight relaxed the guidelines a little bit. Um, cause I think they were the first ones in the U S anyway to do the 150, mm-hmm. um, for the older patients. And I think uh, the Cadago just stuck to their guns on that and kept the 180 over, or excuse me, 130 over 80. And so it'd be interesting to see how this plays out now. Well, it's still very controversial in a lot of circles, primarily for the reason of the the blood pressure measuring. So mm-hmm. they mentioned other guidelines. So the 2017 ACC AHA guidelines is 130 over 80, which was a, for patients with CKD, which was a big deal. And they pretty much state that the reason they didn't go down to 120 was because of this variability in the routine blood pressure measuring. Um, But that is more aggressive than European guidelines. So the European Society of Cardiology and the European Society of Hypertension um, target 130 to 139 
um, and that's also different from the Nas- National Institutes of Health and Care Excellence, so the NICE guidelines, NICE, is 120 to 139. Um, so they recommend less than 120. And um, one of their little pot shots was to say that um, it's measured using the standardized office blood pressure uh, which this guideline takes the view that patients should not be penalized for suboptimal clinical practice <laughs> and that standardized blood pressure must be used to guide therapy. So they're basically saying like, yeah, we're going to take this hard stance because we're not going to put the patient's health at risk because you guys aren't checking blood pressure correctly. That's right. pretty much what they're saying. I was like, dang. But they also say that um, Hypertension Canada, which I think is a cool way to, to they're just called Hypertension Canada, Yeah, um, recommends get? less than 120. So Kadaigo isn't the first, but they are definitely the first American guideline to recommend less than 120 in, I think, any situation. Which is awesome because since Canada is our second, besides the U.S., is our second biggest listening population. So well done on y'all's Hypertension <laughs> Group name. That's freaking awesome. But now they also say that this guideline, like I said, is exclusively based on the Sprint trial. So as far as the grade that they give this evidence, they only give it a level of evidence 2B which is not fantastic if you know if you consider that 1A is probably the best. Um, but they even with that level of evidence, they still say this is what we recommend because it's a, a high quality trial. And and they do obviously that's the only like placebo randomized controlled um, study that they that they have. But they do list some meta analyses as well. Um, they talk about you know seeing the the, the benefits of the more intensive. Um, blood pressure control and uh, that's kind of where they see that even like besides the patients where they have CKD or um, without CKD still seem to benefit from a cardiovascular standpoint Um, and so even if the renal protection or renal um, you know benefits aren't there that you still um, are going to have that cardiovascular and survival benefit so why not push them lower if they can tolerate it. And speaking of tolerating, um, that's a big concern for people, right? So they do say in most CKD patients with high blood pressure, including even frail and elderly patients, because you know other guidelines have made a caveat for frail and elderly patients, um, the cardiovascular benefit of less than 120 outweighs the risks of less than 140, the risks of harm from that, uh, such as AKI, um, electrolyte abnormalities. And other people are concerned about cognitive impairment, um, you know, in the elderly. They say the risk of cognitive impairment may actually be lower uh, with the less than 120 uh, goal. So that's interesting. Which, which, if you guys haven't seen that, actually come that that kind of statement. They're basing that off of um, the Sprint Mind um, evaluation, where they kind of went back and looked at patients' cognitive um, function. And it, it wasn't as great of results as they were hoping for, but it was one of those things that, um, it was, it got them excited enough at the possibility of having a lower blood pressure could increase cognitive ability or at least decrease cognitive decline that, um, from what I've been looking at, I don't think it's actually started yet. Um, but, uh, the Alzheimer's association is funding them to do, I think it's it's seven, more than 7,000 patients are going to be, um, followed for an additional two years and they're doing, it's called sprint mind 2.0 and they're going to continue to follow them because one of the caveats to where they didn't, or I guess one of the, um, arguments as to why they didn't see a bigger result from the, the, um, sprint, uh, mind initial study was that they, it was only three 3.3 years or whatever. And so it needs, you need a longer study to mm-hmm. actually um, truly get a good assessment of when it comes to 
cognitive function or dementia and things like that. So um, I'm assuming this is still underway because I think they made that announcement in um, even like as early as 2019. So they're probably still underway. I just haven't seen the results of um, anything published about that yet. But Sprint Mine 2.0, keep an eye out for that. Nice. Sounds like a... uh Sounds like a robot. It does. From Star Wars. A- AOL. Remember them? AOL. <laughs> then they have a bunch of 15.0 and all these different reboots. Be- before my time. I'm kidding. I was going to say, you can't be that much younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> you might got to remember AOL. Uh, so, yeah. So, they, they do, of course, say that if you're having a patient who you're trying to get down to this goal and they fit right into this this box, but um, they're not tolerating going down over the course of a, a number of months, you know, treat the patient just like you would in any other medical situation. You know, if they, if they can't get down there and they're having symptoms, then they just can't get down there. Um, they also mentioned some instances where um, certain subpopulations don't have the best evidence of benefit um, um, within the CKD group. So advanced CKD, like I mentioned, would be one. G4 and G5, they mentioned specifically. Significant proteinuria, greater than one gram a day. Um, If they already have a baseline blood pressure that's pretty low, like 120 to 129, they might not really see much benefit. Might not be harmful, but not much benefit. Uh, If they're young, uh, less than 50, or older, 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 older age, I guess some people might take offense to that, but over 90, Um, and those with white coat, um, hypertension or severe hypertension may not see as much benefit because if you are monitoring them um, ambulatorily, then their blood pressure may be lower at baseline. But um, yeah, so that's, I, I think it's one of those things that ho- hopefully as time progresses, uh, we'll get more answers to those types of patient populations and subgroups to get more, more data. Um Let's see. So as far as um, patients who cannot uh, tolerate the one less than 120 systolic, um, then, you know, they recommend obviously just kind of following as best you can. And they, they do talk about that the main renal protective, like is uh, the renal protective properties of you know blood pressure monitoring is seen when you lower a patient's systolic blood pressure that's greater than 160 to less than 140. That's where you kind of get the main benefit from your from just a renal protective standpoint. So they do say that, you know, just because you can't get a patient all the way down to 120, sure, you may not get as many of, um, you may not get quite the same cardiovascular outcome benefit, but you will still get um, those renal protective properties. So to at least, you know, push it to that far and then go from there. And they do um, mention diabetes. So this recommendation, they extend to patients um, who have CKD with or without diabetes. And the sprint, of course, did not include patients with diabetes, but they do point out, um, I don't think this is very strong evidence, but they do point out that patients with impaired glucose metabolism, so if their fasting glucose was over 100, had a similar cardiovascular benefit to the patients who didn't have impaired fasting glucose. Like I said, those are not diabetes patients, but they just kind of use that to, to justify it. They also mentioned the ACCORD trial, and we've talked about the ACCORD trial many times, um, how they didn't really demonstrate a overall cardiovascular benefit, but they did mention that there was a substantial reduction um, in stroke risk in the more intensive less than 120 arm of that trial where they weren't you know, having the intense, uh, the intense glucose lowering. So that's kind of what they used to justify that, but... Um, and at the same time, the the um, other guidelines related to diabetes and blood pressure kind of mention they a lot of the data that they use to justify their one thirty over eighty recommendation, you know, is related to the less than one twenty. They just say 
but we're going to stick with 130 over 80 because of various factors. Now, the other question is if you have a patient who is starting off on blood pressure, you know, medication or approaching, you know, you for the first time with hypertension, as well as, you know, CKD, what agents are we going to start them on? So the, the first thing they, they bring up is that if a patient who has CKD and hypertension um, is at least 20 millimeters of mercury above the target, um, you typically are going to need a combination of two or more antihypertensive drugs to start, which is real similar to what the um, the American Heart Association recommends and stuff as well. Um, but then, you know, they, they do discuss some different options as far as, you know, what, what they recommend. Um, for starting therapy and you know they they if the person only has ckd um in in hypertension there's no other you know proteinuria or anything like that present um they they kind of leave it up to you as far as what to start with but they do kind of go into some detail about um ace inhibitors um as well as arbs and then the one thing they are very like adamant about is not using the uh, combination of the two so that was something that there's been some talk like you know with with heart failure and some other um, disease states and specifically ckd um with proteinuria that maybe we get some added benefit if we do the combo it's been a debate for a while there's been plenty of research that shows that it's not beneficial i want to say one trial that showed that was the target trial don't quote me on that one but i think it was target on, on target i think it was ramipril versus telmasartan then maybe it wasn't that then i think that was diabetes mm. but i don't know i'll double check we'll find out yeah Tell you later or not, <laughs> unless we forget. <laughs> but um, the uh, I know for a fact they did a, they did a heart failure study that was the um, the candesartan one, the uh, charmed uh, added where they added candesartan to patients who were on an ACE for mm. heart failure. Um, but even in, in that patient population, they say not to do it. So they do make a very specific thing this um, you know recommendation that we do not do the combination of those two. Yeah, they don't take a hard stance on specific drugs. Like like you said, ACE and ARBs are important, of course. It's kind of disappointed in that they don't really take much of a stance on the diuretics. They just say thiazide diuretics in general. But, um, so you know. I guess that's a good, there's a good opportunity for us to take our stance then. <laughs> because um, The official stance of the core consult on yeah, this podcast. Yeah, we should write our own guidelines. <laughs> um, <laughs> this would probably be really, really valuable. Um, but uh, just kidding, by the way. Before anybody calls us narcissistic again, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, so uh, there's a study that looked at HCTZ versus indapamide um, in patients with CKD. And one thing that they noticed is that in the HCTZ group, that they had worse, um, they had worsening of their renal function over time, whereas the indapamide group actually had an improvement in their EGFR. Um, and so that's something to, uh, the, the study didn't have a, a specific name that I remember. Um, I think it was just a, you know, one of those studies that doesn't have a cool name associated with it. So that's the worst kind. Yeah. I can never remember them, but, um, you know, make sure you take a look at that. If, uh, if you're interested in that, but that's one of the things we've been trying to do at our clinic is when they, uh, if a patient does have CKD uh, and we need, you know, further blood pressure lowering after they've been on an ACE or whatever, um, then we use indapamide specifically if we are going to go with the thiazide and, you know, you know, try to improve that renal function as well as the blood pressure. And beginning with the two drug um, therapy, they recommend a combination of a thiazide with an ACE or ARB first. Mm -hmm. They say and or calcium channel blocker, but I feel like they, they like the thiazide a little better. Mm-hmm. All right, where what else you want to go over with this? 
I mean, that's the big stuff. They they talk about treatment a little bit, but that's I mean, that's pretty much it. They they pretty they don't go too much farther than just those three um, those three drug classes, and then they say you know add on beta blocker or whatever. Doesn't literally say or whatever, but basically does. After that, for compelling indications, um, they they do mention a drug which, if you go on to uh, drugs dot com uh, and you look at news, you can see like new drug updates and things like that. As as things get FDA approved, it's a free website. That's one of the things that um, I know I use. I'm pretty sure Cole does too. But um, they have on that same website. Besides the new FDA approvals, they have one called Pipeline. And if you click on that, you can kind of see what's coming up as far as. Um, soon to be approved medications or at least they think they will be and one of them i saw in there a while ago was um uh finerinone you know say it slow make sure i say it right finerinone um and that's a uh, a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist um so going to be similar to uh, i don't know much about it yet because i it's i haven't done my research as far as uh background information and whatnot on it but it is it looks like it's going to be fda approved in the not too distant future um, and, uh, there's, looks like there are major studies and stuff have been, um, have been published or at least are, are there similar drugs to that used for blood pressure? Um, I'm assuming if it's, if it's just a straight mineral corticoid, um, receptor, like an aldosterone antagonist. Okay. Right? So that's so what like it's going to be kind of similar I would to assume spironolactone or mm-hmm. plurinone kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we should probably do more research before we start talking about it, but you know that's how we do things here. Um, but uh, you're going to get um, this. The study, the preliminary stuff, shows that you get uh, the kidney and cardiovascular protection with modest effects on systemic blood um, or systolic blood pressure. So it only lowers it like by two to three millimeters of mercury lower, um, but you get that cardiovascular protection as well as the renal protection. Hmm. So I'm assuming they're going to be using it more so to prevent the progression of kidney disease and whatnot. I don't usually look at that stuff in trials that are approved versus placebo, placebo, do they? But um, it's good. I think that's what the main point of this drug was okay. to, because it's, so it's been, not so much just for blood pressure lowering. They no, were specifically looking at that for that yeah. reason. Okay. And I think hmm. because besides SGLT2s, what's the last thing that they've come up with for CKD in the last 50 years? Yeah. You know, it's like nothing. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it does say higher instance of hyperkalemia. So I'm a, it probably has a potassium sparing. Must act on the rest. Properties. Yeah. 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 So I'm assuming it's a dildosterone diagnosis like yeah. spironolactone would be. Hmm. So there you go. Next time we talk about it, we'll probably know more. Maybe Cole will do some research and get back to you immediately. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's uh, there's that, and then um, trying to think of what else we haven't covered. I guess like we can go through. Uh, there was a few like very specific situations as far as when they want you to use an ACE inhibitor, uh, you know, first line, um, and so one of the things is they recommend starting um, uh, ACE inhibitor um, or an ARB for people that have hypertension, CKD, and severely increased albuminuria, which means A3, so above 300 um, with their albumin creatinine ratio. Um, And that's in patients without diabetes as well. So without diabetes, hypertension, CKD, that have proteinuria, basically, so albumin creatinine ratio above 3. Then they say that they recommend starting an ACE or ARB for people who have high blood pressure, CKD, and moderately to severely or to severely increased albuminuria if they have diabetes. So if they are an albumin creatinine ratio of you know a grade of A2 or A3, then and they have diabetes along with their other you know comorbidities, then they want you to go ahead and start the ACE over any other option for sure. 
Um, and then uh, they also recommend avoiding any combination, like we said, of the ACER arm together, um, even without, you know, with or without diabetes or any other patient's population. So that's the big uh, the difference there between, um, you know, you, that uh, for initial treatments, as far as we don't have to start with an ACE inhibitor for every single patient, it really is dependent on that albumin creatinine ratio. Mm-hmm. And I guess with people with CKD, it's going to be a common occurrence too. Mm-hmm. So they also do touch on uh, um, renal uh, transplant patients who have hypertension. So in those patient populations, um, they recommend to a blood pressure target of less than 130 um, over 80. And so, and that's the same standardized office blood pressure like we had before. And as far as treatment options in those particular patients, and this is just based on where the data is, um, they recommend that a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, so like amlodipine or something, um, or an ARB be used as the first line antihypertensive agents in those patients. So they're actually mm-hmm. specific about an ARB as opposed to an ACE. And I think right. that's just because that's what the studies have, have looked at. Um, so that's the big thing is it's CKD patients, um, regardless, I guess, of stage, unless they are a transplant patient or on hemodialysis, that's where the, you know, the, the 120 over 80 thing doesn't apply to those patients. So with transplant, it's still 130 over 80 and you're using amlodipine or one of the, uh, ARBs. So, yeah. Anything else we, we miss? Pretty much nothing uh, too crazy. No, I think we we hit all the high points for sure. Another guideline in the books, and they're all. I saw a couple other new guidelines um, coming to the pike, so maybe we'll have a couple more of these in the next little bit. Yeah, if you guys are uh, curious and you don't want to just have to wait for us to put one out, if you go to Medscape and subscribe, the Medscape does a really good um, summary of anytime there's. Uh, guidelines published. So like the other day I got an email that said eight new guidelines and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and most of them are cancer related, I yeah. have found. But they have they have a list too. So if you just want to Google the list, they have a list that you can click on and see yep. those summaries as well. And they, they do good summaries and then they also link off in the reference where the actual guidelines came from. Right. So these new Cadago guidelines are published online. Um, they're free. You can access them even if you don't have access to you know PubMed you know articles and things like that. You can uh, get on the website and get the PDF for free if you they want to They have a nice 11 page exact summary for you to to read at your convenience before delving into the whole thing that's really my goal in life is to be a part of an executive summary (laughs) (laughs) yeah you see all these names on here there's probably 15 names and i was like oh that's those are the guys from the executive summary yeah that's pretty cool yeah guys and gals life goals all right man anything else that's all i got all right, you guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope that was somewhat helpful um, as, a, and as far as a review goes. But uh, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, we'd love to hear them. Feel free to email us. Our, our emails will both be located in the uh, show notes. Um, if you want to reach out to us on any of the social media platforms, that's totally fine as well. Um, thank you guys so much for those of you who have subscribed on Patreon. Um, I hope you guys are liking the lectures and stuff on there um, and definitely more to come. I'm, I'm going to be trying to do at least there'll be shorter lectures probably like 20 to 40 minute lectures but i'm going to try to do um two a week on there um, with the slide sets and everything that you can download so you know worst case scenario you just subscribe steal all the slides and then just unsubscribe and there you go you got thousands of slides for pretty cheap (laughs) 
You're welcome. Um, and if you want to uh, send us a text directly, um, you can text 415-943-6116. And uh, that's where we get a lot of, um, I feel like we get the most like clinical type questions on through the texting platform. But you'll get an automatic response first. And then just if you don't want to fill out that information, that's fine too. Uh, I'll text you back or uh, as, soon as, as soon as we can get, uh, get to it. So um, thank you guys so much. I hope you all are doing well. And we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Thank <laughs> you.